Saints podcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Sarah. And today we're going to make good on a promise we made in an earlier podcast that we would come back and talk about Holy Week. So we are going to have that discussion today, but uh, we have a new slot, a a responding to fan feedback slot at the beginning of the podcast that we need to address (laughs) before getting into our topic for today. Totally. So uh, Cameron Dixon, who is a a dear friend of the podcast, who also has his own podcast, uh, Down to Earth Conversations, if you want to check that out. He sent us a great link uh, talking about the Hebrew word, which is often translated as soul, but sort of unfortunately so. And the reason why we're going to talk about this is because we, of course, answered a question, well, responded to a question last time about what is the difference between soul and spirit and basically Richard and I were like we don't know (laughs) pretty pretty much um and that still stands right like I don't I think in the English language the difference between soul and spirit is sort of not really well defined Mm. but Cameron added this really cool piece in a little video he sent about the word nefesh uh, in Hebrew and that is often like I said translated into soul uh, but this video was great because it talked about how nefesh is actually used in its original language. And rather than talking about something like a soul in the sense that we often think about it, something that comes into the body and then leaves when we die, the word nefesh is actually referring to the whole human as a living, breathing and physical being to the point where when someone dies, they're often referred to as a dead nefesh. So it's quite a different uh, concept to what we might read when we read soul in the Bible, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, so this is definitely pointing us in the direction of there are there are really big issues when you go from one language where words are imbued with all sorts of meanings to another language like English, and we lose a lot of the nuance of what's being shared with that concept. And so, yeah, it was really interesting to, to watch and to go, these, this word nefesh is, is imbued with, with meaning across the entirety of the Hebrew scriptures, which is very nuanced and very different. And yet, over and over again, often it's just translated as soul and it doesn't encompass all of that richness of meaning. That's right. And so if you're interested to watch this great video that Cameron sent through, if you go on YouTube, you can search nefesh, which is N-E-P-H. E-S-H, and along with soul, and it's probably about five down. It's, it's really, really great, so I recommend it. With that out of the way, let's talk about Holy Week. Yes, let's do that. So it's kind of the culmination of Lent in many respects, and it, it's the week that really begins with Palm Sunday, this coming Sunday, as well as we record this podcast, it's this coming Sunday, <laughs> and it kicks off and it goes right through the following week. Uh, from yeah, from Palm Sunday to Easter. And as I said in the previous podcast, it's a bit of a challenge, I think, to lots of us to say, let's really journey through the entire story of Holy Week, not just have Palm Sunday and then skip straight to Easter without all of the stuff in between, because there is this real narrative that happens. It's a story quite central to Christian faith, and yet often we skip over bits of it. 
by not fully engaging with the story. And again, sometimes the story is undone by the fact that we know what the outcome is going to be. We know what the end is. We know that there's a happy ending. And sometimes in life, it's really tempting just to go, hey, let's not go through the challenging parts of the story when I can just have the happy ending at the end and the kids can eat too much chocolate and we'll have a great day. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I think we did touch on this also in that to really experience the joy of Easter, it's really highlighted once you've gone through the whole journey, you know, and we talked about Easter being kind of the dawn after the night in a sense. And so when you journey through Holy Week, you go through all sorts of emotions as well. I know for me, Holy Week can be quite can be quite grim at times you know and but I like that because it speaks to the whole of the human condition not that we're always in a state of joy or we're always chasing after happiness but that stuff happens right <laughs> that's that's not always so great and it also just connects us to those darker moments in our experience of life things like death and grief mourning tragedy all of these things which are really important to acknowledge in a liturgical situation I think. And really that's the thing that shapes all of Lent is is this thing that we think about, the spectre of the cross, that we know that we're journeying towards this moment of absolute despair, loss, torture, death. Our journey through Holy Week is always going to be coloured by that because it's it colours the entirety of Lent. It's this entire season we know whatever readings come up from Sunday to Sunday, it's ultimately looking towards this particular moment that we're really sort of ramping up to it. And as we get closer to it, those events that make the story worthwhile sort of get closer together as it, and it intensifies that experience. So let's start with Palm Sunday because that's what's coming up next right and so we have this pretty amazing story. I always liked this story as a child because I'm really into animals and my favorite animal is the horse uh, or the unicorn depending on whether you think a unicorn would count as an animal, <laughs> given that it's not real, sadly. So I always used to love this, right? There's a donkey. There's a donkey and it becomes a main character in the text. And so I would always get excited when there would be animals in biblical stories. And so here we have the disciples going to get a donkey and then Jesus hopping on said donkey, people laying cloaks on the ground and over the donkey for Jesus to ride, and palm fronds, of course, being waved around and it's this triumphant entry, right, into Jerusalem. And everyone's kind of cheering and, and, and happy and like, Hosanna and, you know, all this stuff. But it's a bit ominous in the sense that we know that all these people are cheering for Jesus and welcoming him into Jerusalem. But we also know that in just a matter of days that crowd is going to turn on Jesus and is going to suggest that he go to the cross. And so it is quite a strange story whenever I encounter it, but it is interesting as well. I love the exchange uh, that Jesus has with those who are saying, you know, tell everyone to be quiet. And Jesus says, look, even if they were quiet, the stones themselves would cry out. And it's just, it, it speaks to the level of excitement and action and activity that's going on as he comes into Jerusalem. So it is a pretty vivid story. So you're right, Sarah, there is so much going on with the Palm Sunday story, and there is so much written about it. And you're right, there is this dynamic where 
this crowd, you know, this crowd that greets Jesus, and we can go into the reasons why, you know, they, they greet him with celebration and acclamation. There's this uh, expectancy. There are some who are like, no, this is a, a military leader who's coming and is, is going to overthrow the Romans. And there are others who would say, no, this is about challenging the temple authority. And, and still others would have had other perspectives because often that's what we do with people who we see as, as great charismatic leaders is that we go, Whatever it is that I'm longing for, I'm now placing those expectations onto them as a figure. And so there's definitely some of that stuff going on. And you're right, there's this crazy contrast when in a matter of days that that turns. And yeah, I think that's an amazing story because I think that happens now. I think it happens with all sorts of political leaders and uh, even celebrities where they, they make one mistake and suddenly we've all gone, well, as good as they were, well, we're cancelling them now. And so maybe this is what's going on, that there's the sort of the moment where they've all gone, oh, Jesus, you haven't lived up to our expectations, so we're going to cancel you in the most extreme way possible. Uh, and I don't say that lightly. Heck, that even happens in ministry too, right? I mean, people can become a new vicar of a parish or can start up a new ministry. And there's an appeal, right? Like, oh, this is new, this is fresh, there's expectation, all of that stuff. And then yet when it becomes old news or it doesn't deliver, quote unquote, in the, in the way that people are expecting, then it can be frowned upon or like, oh, well, that wasn't a great initiative after all or something. And so I think there's so many situations where we see this pattern, right, of people being excited and then turning and becoming a bit anti <laughs> and even competitive at times. But that's another story for another day. Yeah, there are certainly lots of examples of churches that fall apart, right? Because a leader just hasn't done what people wanted them to do. But just to take this in a slightly different direction, like you, I really love Palm Sunday. It's actually one of my favorite liturgies of the year. And a big part of the reason is because it's what you said, it's about the animals. So when I was maybe six or seven years old at the church I grew up on, on Palm Sunday, we had a Jerusalem donkey. And we did this procession, and that's one of the things that happens in our liturgical life, right, is that quite often churches will have some sort of procession where they come out of the church and traditionally they'd walk to the corners of their, of their boundaries to touch all the corners as a kind of symbolic like reaching out to the world. And I know in some places in the UK, they take that right to the extreme where they go right out to the boundaries of the parish, the geographical ones, and that might be several kilometres uh, and go out and they call it clipping the boundaries where you, you touch the four corners of, of your district and that sign of sort of encompassing everyone, which is kind of amazing. So it is one of those things. But yeah, when I was a kid, we had a Jerusalem donkey that led the procession. And it just it's just infused in my memory as this really cool thing. And I know that when the procession ended and, and like all the adults went into church and the sort of service continued, that as one of the kids, we got to stay out with the donkey. And there was one of the church leaders who, who talked about the Jerusalem donkey and how this is this amazing thing, that Jerusalem donkeys have a cross in their fur on their backs which is this amazing, weird thing. And it just, yeah, for me as a kid, it was just one of those moments that absolutely captured my imagination. And uh, I've tried several times uh, in ministry to get a donkey for Palm Sunday and have not succeeded. But, but yeah, it's such a happy memory. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember learning about that too, Richard, the, the cross on the back. And I knew, because being a horse lover, that some horses have what's called a dorsal stripe along the back of the spine. But when I learned that the Jerusalem donkey had one that crossed over the dorsal stripe, I was like, that is so cool. Yeah, that's <laughs> so, really cool. Yeah, like we, we can just geek out a little bit about Palm Sunday, um, because let's be fair, donkeys are awesome as well they're massive ears there's something about a donkey especially when you bring it into a church but just in general they have an amazing presence but at the same time it's funny because it is slightly not what you would expect you know the quote-unquote king of kings to come into jerusalem on right where it might have been something a bit more glamorous right like a like a white horse <laughs> or yeah, yeah. you know even just like a very tall camel right but instead jesus comes in on a donkey and arguably it's it's a colt you know a young donkey uh and so it's it's not going to be big and it's not going to be necessarily very impressive looking it's going to be quite small and spindly um and yet that is what jesus rides into jerusalem on yeah and part of what we understand may have been going on is that there was reasonably well-known prophecy around how the son of David would return to the city, that he would enter through a particular gate, he would enter on a colt, uh, the, the child of a donkey, and that Jesus is, I mean, it's its kind of political theatre in a sense, that there's, Jesus may well have known of this, and publicity stunt isn't exactly the right thing to call it, but it was this thing of, I'm stepping into that role. That there is this expectation, and I'm kind of announcing I'm here. I'm I'm going to step into this role that people are looking for uh, a leader to make some change to make some difference. And I'm it. Yeah, he, here I am. <laughs> so it was a bit of a, a bit of an announcement in that sense. Absolutely, and I, I love what you said about political theatre. You know, because I think that still plays out. I mean. My experience as part of Adjust, you know, um, Diocese of Auckland, Anglicans, Young Anglicans for Social Justice, is that we use theatre in protest mm. as a means to communicate a particular thing. Uh, you know, so the climate strike, we take a big cross. And last time we had a sign that said the earth has been crucified and attached to the cross. And we, you know, and I wore, I think I just wore a clergy shirt for that one. Poss- no, I think I wore an alb and a stole. So, you know... Political theatre is actually a thing. I kind of love this example of Jesus on Palm Sunday because it almost gives us a little bit of allowance to do that today. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So one of the other nice little bits of the tradition around Palm Sunday is, and I don't know actually how this plays out in the rest of the world, but certainly here we get flax and weave them into crosses so that people in congregations can sort of hold, uh, and it's not, a palm cross, but it's a, it's a flax cross, really. We call them palm crosses, as this sort of symbol of joining into this, this moment where Jesus makes this triumphal entry uh, into Jerusalem. And one of the nice bits of the tradition that often passes lots of people by is that the idea is that people hang on to these palm crosses over the coming year, and then when we're getting close to Lent the following year, we ask people to bring those back when they're nice and dried out and we burn them and they become the ashes that we then use on Ash Wednesday. Uh, and when we do that sign of the ashes and we bless people and we say, from dust you came into dust you shall return, repent and believe the gospel, those words of Ash Wednesday, which we talked about in the Lent podcast. So there is this nice kind of ongoing cycle that happens and yeah, just a nice point of connection. And yeah, I hope lots of people know that because there is a, a beauty to that, right? 
Absolutely. And it, like you said, it's cyclical, you know, so, and it ties together death and life quite beautifully as well. And I think that's another theme as well that obviously we see all through the Easter season, but also through Holy Week. So speaking of Holy Week, so we've covered sort of, well, we've talked about Palm Sunday, but in terms of, you know, the big ritual moments, the next one probably to talk about is Maundy Thursday. So there are a few things that give Monday Thursday its particular character. And the first one that I'd just very briefly mention is that for us as Anglican clergy, there's a tradition that we renew our ordination vows on that day. Now, in some places they do it differently or might do it on a different day, but that's certainly been the tradition that I've experienced uh, as a priest. So often there's a service held, maybe at a cathedral, where people go and... They do this thing of blessing oils, but it's an opportunity for everyone in ministry to renew their commitment. And it's traditionally been focused around clergy people, but in this diocese, that's expanded that anyone holding a license is welcome to come and renew the commitments they've made to the church, which is quite a nice thing to do. That again, around this major time of festival, we kind of have this extra thing where Easter was a traditional time of baptism. And, and as we go into the, the big events of, of the end of Holy Week, it's a time for all of us in ministry uh, to renew our commitment. So that's kind of a nice thing that we get to do as well. So Maundy Thursday is is often, well, it should be characterised by a couple of things, but one of those things is foot washing. Towards the end of the Gospel of John, we do encounter a story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet, and they do that before the Last Supper. And that's something that we'll touch on again soon. And it's kind of great because it ties in, in my mind, to the previous week's gospel where Jesus is has his feet anointed uh, by, in what some translations would describe, a sinful woman, uh, which, of course, we refute often. So in that story, Jesus has his feet anointed in preparation for burial. And so his feet are touched, Right. And then we see at the Last Supper, before the Last Supper, Jesus touching the feet of his disciples. And I love this because it's kind of like Jesus is using the model of this woman, right? Which has been refuted by the disciples to do something for the disciples. So I kind of love that interplay, but that's just a side note. So Jesus gets down on the ground, washes his disciples' feet. And of course, there's a little bit of pushback uh, for one particular member (laughs) but it's a real beautiful display of servanthood and this is something that of course we capture in the deacon's stole particularly so deacons in the church will wear a stole that goes over the left shoulder and across to the right of the hip and this is meant to represent the towel that Jesus wore to dry his disciples feet after washing them and we've talked a little bit about that in a video that we made uh, so feel free to check that out But this is this moment, right, where we see Jesus subverting this idea of what it means to be a leader, where he's actually saying, I've come to serve, not to be served. Yeah, and it's probably good to remember as well that in those days, foot washing was not symbolic like it is now in the sense, yes, it was symbolic on one level, but also it was pretty dirty, right? Like we're not talking about covered sold shoes at this point. We're talking about sandals in the dust, And so for Jesus to wash the disciples' feet is a pretty radical thing because generally if you walk into a dinner party in that context, 
you would have had your feet washed by a servant at the door because you would have been filthy and you would have made the whole space pretty filthy. So for Jesus to do that, we're not just talking about symbol here. We're talking about really getting in there, you know, like really Mm. getting the dust and the dirt off the disciples' feet. So it it is very hands-on and it probably would have been an extremely unpleasant experience uh, to have your, your leader, your rabbi, I guess, wash your feet. It's a very intimate thing. And of course, this carries into the experience today of having your feet washed. I think even though we don't have probably filthy feet to the extent that disciples did, there are a lot of people who are really uncomfortable with having their feet touched. And I get that. Um, But I also feel personally, I'm not going to say you all have to get your feet washed. But for me, that's part of the experience. Yeah, the discomfort is definitely part of what it's about. Like, I am one of those people. I Like, I actually have quite an extreme reaction when people touch my feet. I, I tend to sort of kick involuntarily. But yeah, feet are just kind of icky. You know, there is just that ickiness factor. And having another person touch my feet, for me, it's... It's crossing some boundaries. Totally. And, you know, if you go to the Maundy Thursday service at Holy Trinity Cathedral, the bishop, the bishop would wash your feet. But also, I think one of the the main things that happens, actually, is that the clergy, the priests and the deacons and the bishops of any one space will get down on their knees and wash the feet of those in their congregation. And that's a really important part of it, right? Because like Jesus, we are saying that we are there to serve it sort of speaks against this clericalist idea, right? That that clergy are somewhat elevated from the rest of the people. And I always say, if anything, we're actually underneath. We're there to be a trellis that holds and supports people in their baptismal calling rather than being above and lording over anybody. That's And if we do think that, then we've probably lost the essence of our calling. For me, it's a really tangible reminder of what it is that I'm called to be. But also, I think... Overall, it can be a pretty uncomfortable experience, depending on how comfortable you are with your feet. So all of this links quite well to why it's called Monday Thursday. Do you know why it's called Monday Thursday? No, but I do know that you Googled it about five minutes ago. <laughs> all right. So Sarah's just outed me. Yes, I did, I did use the Google machine to just refresh my memory. Monday comes from a Latin word that translates essentially as commandment. And that's because following this sequence where Jesus has washed his disciples' feet, he says, I'm giving you a new commandment, that you love each other as I have loved you. So yeah, there's this sort of profound moment where Jesus demonstrates what love looks like and then says, and this is what you are to do. So those two things go together quite well, that there's this act of service and then Jesus follows it up with the commandment, love each other in the way that I have shown you to do it. Like literally right now, I've just shown you what life looks like. Go and do <laughs> like that. Like we've just done it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and again, it's it's radical. What he's done is extreme. It goes past any social norms, uh, any religious norms, you know, all of that stuff. So what he's, it's a huge challenge to his disciples to say, look, I've just washed your feet, go and do that for other people. You know, whether mm. or not they physically wash people's feet or not, it, we don't know. But we do know that it's a really radical call to service and love. And so the next thing that happens on Monday Thursday is what is known throughout sort of time and in popular culture as the Last Supper, Mm. where there is essentially a, a final meal shared between Jesus and his disciples. And my little fun fact about this is the number 13. And 
this is because lots of people have that thing, right? Oh, 13, unlucky number. Yeah. But this is where that tradition begins because the idea, now, it doesn't actually make sense because we know that there were 12 disciples in Jesus. So that's where we get well, 13. Well, 12, 12 men. Right? Twelve men, yeah, yeah, that's what we say. So there, there are the twelve, and and there was symbolism in that too, right? Like mm. Jesus chose twelve because there were there was twelve was a significant number in, in uh, Jewish history around the twelve tribes. So twelve leaders for twelve tribes. There's a historical link there. We know that there were more people in the Jesus movement than just these twelve, but they were the sort of the chosen inner circle and Jesus. But we also know that at this meal there probably would have been people who served. Uh, and provided food and, and, and that aspect of it too. But yeah, there is this idea of, you know, this was a moment at the moment where the final meal is shared and there's this thing, all 13 people there, it's auspicious. And that's where that tradition comes from. Interesting. So, of course, Jesus being the 13th. Yes. <laughs> which my brain just clicked into. There so. you go, lucky 13, <laughs> maybe, I don't know. Yeah, don't know. So there's lots of debate around what kind of meal the Last Supper was, whether it was a meal... Uh, ahead of the Passover, whether it was a Passover meal itself. What we can say is that certainly Jesus took elements of a typical Jewish meal and imbued them with meaning, fresh meaning. And again, there is so much written about this. And really, I am just going to skirt across the surface because <laughs> we could really disappear down that rabbit hole for a long time. And maybe when we come back to talk about Eucharist, Somewhere further down the track, that might be a better space to have that conversation. But certainly Jesus has taken things and said, you know, my bread broken, wine poured out, you know, and shared. And that there is this sort of symbolism added and that this is picked up by the early Christian movement and replicated over again in actually quite a, a diverse number of ways. It wasn't just using those things either. But this is very much a, a linking to that particular part of the tradition. And so... That's also one of the things that we remember particularly on Monday, Thursday. Yeah, and you'd think as well that the penny would have finally dropped for the disciples at this point, right? So Jesus has said over and over again to his disciples, look, I'm going to I'm gonna die, you know, like, well, I'm not going to be here, you know. And they're sort of like, oh, really? I don't know. You know, and so that they're sort of confused. And then we get to this meal. And he's washed their feet and he said, do this. You know, it's pretty, pretty, getting pretty final already, getting pretty dramatic. But then he says, you know, this is my body broken for you. Do this, you know, and this is my blood. Do this to remember me. So it's kind of saying, I'm not going to be here pretty soon. Do this to remember me. Because obviously you don't remember someone who's with you all the time. And so it's, it's a foreshadowing, I think, of something that is imminently coming, that his death is coming. And on top of that, he also says, one of you will betray me. We started off the podcast by talking about how words can have multiple meanings in different things. And certainly there's an indication that Jesus is talking about remembering in that sense of, I'm not going to be here, cast your minds back to a time when I was. So there is that meaning too. But the other thing that we need to remember is that in the events that follow on Good Friday, what happens to the body of Jesus, the literal physical body of Jesus, is that it is dismembered. So remembering is actually in this sense about putting a body back together again. So there is this weird foreshadowing of what happens in the Eucharist 
And that's part of our Eucharist understanding, is that when we use the words remember me, we're talking about recreating the body of Christ. And that's part of what Anglican tradition is around the Eucharist, is that when we celebrate the Eucharist, we're taking things which are dead, and it's like a, a resurrection where the body of Christ is put back together again and then shared with the community. So for me, that's part of the real richness of the meaning. And again, a meaning that often we skirt over because we just think, Oh, memory. We know what memory is about. We know what remembering is about. Jesus proposed this as a memorial, but at the hardest sacramentalist end of our church understanding, we're saying, no, it's also about uh, recreating life. How do we as a community continue to recreate the life of Christ in our midst? I love that. That's beautiful. So there's another thing that happens on Maundy Thursday after the ritual foot washing, and that is something that we often call the watch. Now, We have touched on this briefly in a couple of podcasts ago, and I described it, and I don't know if I did a great job, so I'm going to just throw this ball to Richard so that he can also add his description of how he experiences the watch. Often Monday Thursday services that happen in the evening are around foot washing, and then this uh, sort of memorial Eucharist, a kind of uh, a part of the service that essentially reflects on the Last Supper and, and what else took place there. And then in some churches, there's a tradition where because Jesus at the end of the Last Supper went out into the Garden of Gethsemane and prayed and asked the disciples to wait with him and to to stay awake and he's clearly distressed, wants some company, and yet they're really tired, you know, they've had a big meal. They lie down and go to sleep and Jesus continues to pray through the night, essentially by himself. And he keeps coming back and checking on them and saying, Come on, can I'm needing some support. Like can I'm really can, can freaking out up? right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, pretty, <laughs> can you please stay awake? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It's like, seriously, guys, come on. Uh, but anyway, they keep going to sleep and Jesus continues to pray through the night. And so the tradition of the watch or, or the vigil is that we try to take that place. We, we recognize that the disciples, for, for pretty human reasons, they were tired. They've been journeying. They've been doing this ministry of Jesus. There's all sorts of stress going on. They've just had this meal. It's the end of the day. For goodness sake, it is nighttime. It is where we traditionally sleep. So I, I think we're often a bit harsh on the disciples. But there is this uh, tradition where we try to step into that place for them and say, we will wait at least an hour. And in some churches I've been in, that vigil has gone right through the night, right through to whatever service happens on Good Friday in the morning. Uh, And every church I've been at where they've continued this practice, there are always one or two people who are just like, yeah, I'm just going to go through the whole night and turn up and do that. And they find that that's a a really unique way of, again, entering into the experience of, of becoming part of the story. Because that's what liturgy and Holy Week is ultimately about, right? It's about us entering into the story, imagining that we were there, living it as if we were experiencing it for the first time. Absolutely. I have to say that the longest I've made it for the watch is until 4 a.m. So if I was a disciple, I probably would have fallen asleep at that point. But I still thought that was pretty good. Um, yeah, good effort. <laughs> but yeah, but I have, yeah, I've been in uh, situations as well where people have uh, stayed the whole night through to the service on the Friday, which I thought was amazing. I feel like, you know, pulling all-nighters was definitely a thing that I did more in my teenage years. I have to admit, I'm, I have less capacity to do that now. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I don't know how old the disciples were and whether that was a vibe. But anyway, uh, but there are also people, it's it's kind of open-ended, right? So the, the, the reserve sacrament is sort of set up on an altar often. Mm. 
and then we will wait with that. And that's the idea. And so there are some people who will wait for a few minutes symbolically, right, as part of that. And then there will be others who are hardcore and they go all the way, all the way through. And I would say it's probably our only liturgical one-nighter of the whole year, probably. I mean, certainly we do, you know, midnight mass at, at Christmas is, is one thing, but you're right. We're normally, normally in bed by half one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that really leads us into Good Friday. And again... Lots of different things happen on Good Friday uh, liturgically in terms of there's a range of services that, that can happen. There are things like the Stations of the Cross, which is one of my favorite traditions, to be honest. And again, just like I said earlier in the podcast around as a kid remembering the Jerusalem donkey, well, I also remember walking the Stations of the Cross at a really young age. And again, if you don't know what that particular tradition is, Stations means you know, a place where you look at typically at an image and you have some reading and reflection. And there are 12 stations in the in the traditional stations of the cross with the 13th kind of, the 13th station being Easter day itself. Uh, but 12 stations that you would walk on Good Friday and they tell the story of what happened on Good Friday from Jesus being arrested through his trial to walking through Jerusalem, carrying his cross, falling over at times and, and being picked up again, all these sorts of things, uh, till finally he's crucified and buried. So it tells that entire story the whole way through. And uh, I was really fortunate in that I was in Israel six years ago, and one of the final things that I got to do on my pilgrimage to Jerusalem was to walk the stations as they are on the streets of the old city in Jerusalem, because there are literally great big markers that say, you know, station number seven and you stop on the spot and you you read the passage and you share reflections and you and you journey through it in the place so again a really wonderful experience but for me that thing of stations of the cross it's something i experienced as a child it's something i've created services around on good friday as a priest and then i even got to go and experience in israel itself so for me it's a really wonderful thing and i know that a really wonderful expression of that. We've talked about it before, happened with a just last year around reenacting a different kind of Stations of the Cross. Yes, we did that. So we actually started out by commissioning a new cross, which we use in protest, and that we've done a massive podcast on that, and so you can go check that out. But we took that cross after it was commissioned through the Stations of the Cross, which we did through this Auckland city. So we started at Nelligan House, which is in Parnell, and then we moved through to St. Matthew's in the city, which is smack bang in the middle of the city, and then through to All Saints Ponsonby. And I like this because like you, Richard, and your experience of walking the stations uh, in the Holy Land, right, and, and it being a pilgrimage rather than just something you do in one room or in, in one church, it, there's a movement to it. There's, there's a journey. There's a pilgrimage. And for me, that was really powerful, walking together as a group of people from one station to the next and changing our physical space every single time was quite cool. And of course, it was dark, you know, and I remember at points we had to stop and, you know, shine phone lights on our little booklets because we, you know, we couldn't really see very well. And every single station was in, was in a really different spot. I remember some were suspended from trees and you know, um, in various kind of pokey areas around church buildings and, and on the street itself. So that, that was a really cool experience. And I think it does lend itself well to the idea that this 
Stations of the Cross tradition is very, it can be very creative. You, it can be done in a whole bunch of different ways. And so that way was an expression of it being done as a pilgrimage. But there are other ways as well in which it can be done. Art exhibitions or in a church liturgy, uh, where, the, where the readings are read quite formally and there are perhaps images on a screen. There's so many different ways you can do the Stations of the Cross, but I personally, like you, find it an extremely powerful practice on, on Good Friday. I know another part of the Good Friday tradition we spoke about before recording the podcast was around this thing called the veneration of the cross. Do you want to share some thoughts about your experience of that? Yeah, so I've seen this done in a few places. It's not just one time that I've seen it, but I personally first engaged with this at at Holy Trinity Cathedral, which is just opposite the building we're in now. And I did it during uh, a, a course where our late bishop, Bishop uh, Jim White, was teaching us all about Holy Week and the, the great three days, or what we might call Triduum. So on the service on Good Friday, uh, there was a whole bunch going on, right? But what I want to focus on is the fact that there was a massive cross that was brought down the central aisle of the cathedral and placed on a stand right at the front. And then there was a time where people could come and, and venerate this cross, or it, that's a very fancy word, but basically... Yeah, what do you mean by venerate? <laughs> well, it's a good question. I mean, yeah, it is, it is a weird and fancy word to venerate. And I think in general, it just means to, to pray in a certain way, right? Which, which owes great respect to what is happening. And usually that is embodied in a certain object or and in this case, a cross, right? So we're not mm. worshiping the actual cross in its physical form, but we are connecting with a physical cross, which then points us to the moment, to the moment in the Easter story. Yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. I think it is this moment where, again, like we were saying before, all of this liturgy is about us entering into the story. And so venerating the crosses again, it's that moment where we become like one of the witnesses, like one of the people who are there, who saw this atrocity take place, and we have pause to reflect on what is the greater meaning of this, because that's ultimately what Good Friday is about. It's not just about looking at the darkest expression of human experience. It is that, but it's it's asking those deeper questions of why, how am I involved with this, what is God doing in this moment? All of these are the beginnings of us kind of working out what is this all about, and Christian theology has said a lot of things about it. Some things that I think are helpful, some things that I think are really unhelpful. So there's lots of thought and debate around these things. And I know some people will have very hard positions on it. I used to, and now I have a less hard position about <laughs> just what I think is going on in that Good Friday moment. And we're not going to debate those here because that's out of the scope for this particular podcast. But, but I do think part of the experience of Holy Week is to take time to reflect on personally what do I think is happening in this moment mm. how am I encountering God in this moment do I just experience darkness do I experience something else yeah and I think with a physical cross right it's easier for me personally and I, I think for many others too um, but not all to enter into the story in a really tactile way you know, because so much of what we talk about, we're retelling a story. And retelling a story is awesome. 
but reliving a story is kind of another thing. And of course, we can't relive it properly, right? Like we can't be there, but we can use symbols and different techniques in our liturgy in order to really enter into the drama of the story. This cross was huge, okay? I'm not <laughs> not talking like a little thing. It was massive and it was heavy. It requires two very strong people to carry it through the church and then it's mounted and you, everyone sort of holds their breath thinking, is it going to fall over, you know? Mm. When you walk up to this cross and everyone has the opportunity to do so, you're staring up at it and it, it's quite it's quite a daunting sight actually and so as people have the experience to come up and and venerate this cross there are different ways in which people would do it and of course there's the option of kissing it or there's the option of you know hugging it or you know kneeling in front of it there's so many different ways you can interact with this cross as a means of reflection and connection one of the things that we actually forgot to talk about in answering a question in our last podcast is someone said, what about prostrating? Oh, this is a great example. This is a great opportunity. Yeah. Okay. So prostration is something, if you've ever been to an ordination service, quite often people who are being ordained as deacons or priests, uh, and this varies from wherever you're at, will lie down flat on the ground at some point in the service. Now, prostration can mean different things to certain people. For me personally, it's about surrender. It's about giving up everything that I've got in a, in a physical display and saying everything I have is yours to, to God, basically. And it's a, a sign of servanthood and commitment and just laying it all out on the line. So that's what it means to me. I don't know. It could mean different things for other people, but there is in veneration this opportunity to to prostrate before the cross as well as a sign of and an act of surrender and worship really so there's many ideas around this as well like being in the presence of god in the bible saying you know you can't stand up or you can't you're just so overcome with the glory of God that you have no other response but to be flat on your face. And and so there's, there's sorts of all of these images and ideas that are woven into this idea of prostrating and it's become different things. But for me, it was quite moving to see people prostrating before this cross. Personally, I kissed it, but I saw other people giving a hongi to the cross as well, which is obviously a, a Maori custom, and it's about sort of exchanging breath and life force. So that's another quite powerful thing that I saw happening. Yeah, wow. And it wasn't just me doing the thing, right, that was powerful. I think when I cried was actually watching other people interacting and seeing the emotion and the variation of ways in which people would interact with the story uh, in this drama at that particular point. So yeah, found it really emotional and moving. And it is, uh, if it's available during during Good Friday, it's something that I like to do. Yeah, and I think my comment on lots of these things is because there's a point where I have a certain amount of healthy skepticism <laughs> that I sort of go, well, is that for me or not? And it's really easy at times in my life to sit back and go, oh, no, that's not for me actually try it see what happens because uh, there are lots of religious experiences that I've had that we won't go into here but where I've I've taken that step and gone actually I'm going to try that I'm going to see how that feels I'm going to see how I experience that and be open to it we don't have lots of opportunities in our regular worshiping life to kind of engage in this really tactile way if you have the opportunity to do something around venerating the cross on good friday it, it might not be for you, but it might be for you. You might be surprised. So, And I'm one of those people who I, I do enter into that because 
all sorts of things have happened on different Good Fridays around that particular practice. Right, so that leads us into Holy Saturday, which is something we've talked about on two podcasts ago, (laughs) uh, where we talked about it being a day of waiting. So there's this period between the story in which Jesus has died, and then of course on Easter Sunday we know what's going to happen, that there's a resurrection, but then there's this kind of sometimes awkward day in between. And I have some feelings about Holy Saturday, but I know you do too, Richard. So uh, why don't you share some of those? There's a priest I've been fortunate to spend some time with whose name is Michael Lapsley. He goes by Father, Father Michael Lapsley. And he was a priest in South Africa during apartheid and became involved with the Truth Commission after apartheid. And because of his involvement around these political things in South Africa, he was sent a bomb in the mail that blew up in his hands and horribly disfigured him so he's lost both of his hands and since then he's done all sorts of work around trauma and victims and rehabilitation and he has this beautiful idea that he talks about being a victim and he talks about being a survivor the stage after you've moved on from being a victim where you've you've kind of got it back together you're able to function again but he said the in his own journey when he realized that he had a work of forgiveness to do around the people who harmed him he said you know the thing about being a survivor is often i could slip back in, into being a victim quite easily uh, i'd be triggered and things would send me back into that space there was a point where he realized he had to do more than just survive he needed to become victorious so he says there are these three stages of being a victim being a survivor and then being victorious and for him finally being victorious was around confronting his assailants, the people who had harmed him, and finding a place of forgiveness for them. Pretty remarkable. He's a pretty amazing man. And so there's something really about him uh, that's that's just something to behold, I think. And that journey is, is very, very powerful. But he also compares that that's sort of the experience of Easter, right? That, that Good Friday is the day of being a victim. Saturday, Holy Saturday, is sort of the day of surviving. The trauma's over. It's the moment where we move into survival mode, where we we start getting back to a normal kind of functioning, but we can slip back into being a victim again. It's only with the resurrection that that victory takes place, that we become victorious, that that a new kind of life becomes possible again. And so I, I think about that a lot as I think about Easter. I think about those three stages he talks about. I can think about the moments in my life where I've experienced trauma, when I've moved into that stage of surviving. And I think often, yeah, the real challenging thing that he says is that often people get to surviving and we say, well done. And we should say well done. Absolutely, we should say well done. But surviving isn't necessarily the end of the journey, that there is a, a, an opportunity to, to learn from the real hardship and the trauma that we've experienced and to turn it into something new as well. And that's being victorious. Wow, what an incredible story. And I think what really resonates with me from that story is that this guy's hands didn't grow back. When we talk about, in this particular example, because I know there are so many examples of of what it means to be a victim, right? It's a huge, huge topic for another time maybe. But in his particular example of being a victim, becoming a survivor, and then becoming victorious, 
at none of these moments that he grow back his hands, right? So it's really something that happened, and it was an internal and very spiritual journey, it sounds like. Oh, and it took years and years and years. Yeah. Like, it wasn't something that just happened in three days for him. It happened over a long period of life, and that's what I think about Holy Saturday. And for me, I, I think I said that in the last podcast, we don't know how long Holy Saturday lasted. Um, yes, there's a biblical record that sort of says, well, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, whatever it is. And I get that, but I know that for many of us, Good Fridays can last a long time. Holy Saturdays can last a long time. It is that period of, of waiting. But I think I do think about that in terms of what ex- was experienced by the disciples as well, right? That those who, you know, those who who bore witness to what happened, those who ran away, you know, there was all sorts of trauma around what happened in different people's experiences. And then there's the day after. And mm. how do you piece life back together after everything that's happened? And that's why one of the reasons that the, the Emmaus story resonates so deeply with me, right, is that there's the story about the unnamed disciples. They say that they're followers of Jesus. And one is unnamed probably because it, she was female. is why she is not given an identity. That's just one of the realities of the biblical text. But they're talking and it's one of the resurrection appearances, but they're talking about what has happened. Yeah. And it's that thing of, we're traumatized. We're talking about everything that's happened. We're trying to make sense of what's gone on. Yeah, and they're going home. Like, yeah. they're, they're, they're not, you know, obviously the ministry of Jesus, they were all together, right? And they mm. used to kind of travel around with Jesus. And then this big thing happened and Jesus died. And they were like, well, crap. Like, what do we do now? Where are yeah. we? And so they go home probably for some consolation, probably, you know, just to regroup, right? And be like, what does this mean now? Like, we're no longer a movement. Like, Jesus is gone. Yeah. And so I can imagine that conversation, right? And I do often imagine it on Holy Saturday, what it would be to be walking home from this amazing experience that you've shared, being a disciple for so long, and then all of a sudden having your leader die and it all of a sudden be over. Yeah, and I just think it's more like a wake. I think it is that moment of there is still darkness it's not as acute as it was the day before but it's still there and it's still a major part of these people's lives as they're trying to find a new way forward mm-hmm. and even as they're talking with Jesus who they don't know is Jesus right who's been resurrected they are walking along and and they sort of say to this person who they don't recognize as Jesus don't you know what's happened where have you been you know, like, yeah, because you know, yeah. Jesus kind of pretends to not have really you been know. Living under a rock. Yeah, have you been living under a rock? Like, where have you been? You know, as in, this is massive news. Yeah. Like, we are distraught. This is, this is, you know, something that has completely changed and rocked all of us. Where have you been? You know, so it's no little deal. And I think Holy Saturday is that day for recognizing the continuing grief and and trauma and confusion and disillusionment, I think as well, yeah. that the followers of Jesus experienced at that time. Yeah, I think the reason that this particular part of the story resonates, it clearly resonates very deeply with me, and it does. And that's because this is the space where a heck of a lot of my ministry happens. doesn't happen on Easter Day. doesn't happen on the day of the resurrection. It happens the day before. Often... The worst part of a person's story is immediately behind them, but there's still a whole lot of stuff that's being processed, and actually we haven't got to Easter Day yet. So as I say, for me, I like those descriptions. I like thinking about this because it shapes how I think about where are people in their journey. It does shape how I approach pastoral issues. 
because it is that thing of going, yes, we are a people of the resurrection, but the resurrection is going to come in its time, not in my time, and I can't insist upon it. I'm, I might be the person who's going to stay in there and, and, and remain hopeful that the resurrection is going to come, and maybe that's my job, but it's not my job to make the resurrection happen either. Totally. So as we know, there aren't a whole bunch of, or any often, rituals or liturgies that are wrapped around Holy Saturday. Well, certainly not this aspect of Holy Saturday. No, no, but I think that would be cool. Just a side note, I would love to do some kind of liturgy or engage in a liturgy around the road to Emmaus, and or the Emmaus Road, <laughs> depending on how you describe it. And, you know, just entering into those feelings a bit more in a ritualistic sense. You know, what it is like to experience this trauma, this disillusionment, this confusion, um, disappointment, and and these raw emotions of what it must have been for the disciples. And I know that there are some theologians that really feel the same way, that we don't embrace that middle space well enough in our liturgy. So we clearly feel quite strong about the integrity of Easter Saturday, but that said... Some churches will begin their celebration of Easter with a service when the sun goes down on Holy Saturday. Yes, and this can be wrapped around a symbol, which is what we would call the Easter fire. And that kind of begins the service, right? So there's this massive fire that's lit, uh, usually in like a church courtyard or outside, preferably, where it's not going to burn the church down. Uh, And from that fire is lit the new Paschal candle for the following year. And we are going to talk more about the Paschal Candle another time when we talk about Easter as a season, because we really did want to focus on Holy Week as opposed to going all the way into Easter. But that is something that can begin on Saturday night, and it's usually very late. Yeah, and I think in rounding off this talk about Holy Week, it is appropriate that we acknowledge that you you mentioned this word earlier, the tridium. It's the great three days. And what that really means is Monday, Thursday, beginning with that service around foot washing and the remembrance of, of the Last Supper, through Good Friday, that's the second day, and the third day is Saturday, actually beginning at night. Once the sun's gone down, it's, it's fitting in with that tradition of the day beginning when the sun ends, which is the Jewish tradition. So that's why Shabbat, in the Jewish understanding, actually begins on Friday night, even though it goes through the day on Saturday. So it's linking with that idea. Um, which is why it's okay to have an Easter service on a Saturday night, not necessarily the Sunday morning. So that's kind of where that comes from. But yes, the, my one comment about the Easter fire service, and the one thing I really love, and particularly around this thing of having an open fire in a courtyard, that's that's where the service begins, is that it says something about kind of the wildness of God's love re-entering the world, that it's something uncontainable, that it bursts forth and it's dangerous. And I like that. And even though we light the Paschal candle from it and we kind of tame the fire a little bit, actually the love of God is irrepressible, that it, it bursts into our lives in this really dramatic way. And for me, that's a really a particular point of connection that I really value. That's really cool. And, and the flame, I guess, that wild flame, right, is then carried into the essence of the Paschal candle, which, of course, continues to burn through the season of Easter and also is lit, you know, at other times for funerals and baptisms and other, you know, occasions. So it is carrying that wild flame of God's love through the whole church year. Yeah, it's cool. It's a cool symbol. So, of course, this is the Sarah and Richard synopsis of Holy Week. And it reflects our particular understandings and tradition and experience. And of course, uh, there are all sorts of offerings that take place over the course of Holy Week. 
our encouragement to you in recording this podcast is to say, do try to enter into the story because that's the really transformative, amazing, fun thing to do is to actually really enter into it, to really get emotionally involved, to experience it, to make the most of these opportunities for, for worship, which is kind of tactile and experiential in a way that often regular worship isn't, and see if that experience helps you encounter Easter in a different way. Absolutely. If you are a part of uh, the community of Ordinary Saints, we're also on this coming Monday uh, going to be looking at Holy Week again in a tactile way. So we're going to be looking at all the symbols of Lent and Easter that are grounded, right, that are of the earth. So there's many of them. We talked about a donkey. We talked about stones. We talked about fire. we We talked about water, ash. There's so much going on. And so we're kind of going to be looking at it through the participation of the earth in this story because it's something that often is focused on the people being the main players. And of course, they you know, are definitely main players in the mix, but the earth is participating with us in that. And we see that such as you know the earthquake when, when Jesus dies and the darkness that comes over the land and stuff. So we know the earth is a player. So if you're interested, you can come to that. It's on Monday night. We're going to be meeting in person, uh, but there will be an online component if you're not comfortable just yet joining in on person. But thank you so much for hanging out with us today. This is a bit of a long podcast, but we think it's worth it because Holy Week is pretty amazing. Mm-hmm.